All right. Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of Letter of Law Interviews. Uh, I think this is the eighth episode of this interview series. Uh, we're back after a month-long hiatus, but this is a new year and we have an exciting lineup of new guests on the show. So, so far we have spoken with uh, legal practitioners, we have spoken with uh, legal journalists, and we've also spoken with students who are pursuing LLMs abroad. So I thought it only made sense now to have someone from the academia, a law professor, come and speak to us uh, about what all of that entails. And who better than Professor Rohini Sen? Uh, I've been following Ma'am's work for a long while now. Uh, Ma'am is Ma'am teaches public international law at the Jindal Global Law School, and she's also a PhD candidate at University of Warwick. Uh, other than that, I really, really enjoy reading Ma'am's writings. Uh, two of her recent pieces on her experience of uh, teaching international law. I, I will link those articles in the description section, so be sure to check them out. Uh, also, uh, the, the tiny snippets and uh, uh, bits of her thoughts that Ma'am shares regularly on Instagrams are a delight to read and also extremely educative experience. Uh, so thank you so much, Ma'am, for uh, being here all the way from England. Thank you for such a generous introduction, Sathak. I'm very happy to be here. And for me, it's always exciting to talk to students in one form or the other. <laughs> Fantastic. So um, before we begin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, your journey through law school, how you got interested in international law and your uh, decision to pursue a career in academia and so on. So I am actually an accidental lawyer. I had no plans of joining a law school. I wanted to do comparative literature, history, or one or the other. And a strange series of events uh, then led me to, you know, join the law school eventually. And for quite some time, I found myself completely lost. So I was with classmates who had a very clear idea of what they wanted out of the law school experience, what it meant. And, you know, right from day one, they were very clear about the internships they wanted, everything that they wanted to pursue. And I constantly kept wondering if, that's all that there is. And if I am a classic misfit in a law school, um, eventually through a moot court, I got interested in public international law, international humanitarian law to be precise. And I found that experience fascinating. In terms of how I view moot court experiences, I've come a long way since then. <laughs> but that I think, you know, many ways was a defining moment for me. I found something to do in a law school. And I've always wanted to teach, even while I was struggling with the idea of what one is supposed to get out of a law school experience. So that wasn't much of a decision for me. I was fairly clear that at the end of five years, I will teach. I had no idea how, because legal academia back then was not something young lawyers pursued. But I thought perhaps at the end of five years, I'll figure it out. And much like my law school journey, most of my journey in and around legal academia has not been very decisively planned. I've stumbled upon opportunities, I've taken them up, I've made what I thought I could of them. And I think I am where I want to be. So in a way, things have fallen into place. Perhaps that's how it was meant to be. But uh, no, through this, I do want to say that if you don't have a plan at the beginning or at the end of the law school, it's perfectly okay. You'll figure your way around things as long as you, you know, um, have some, some inclination, some sense of understanding towards what you want to do. Also, sometimes what you don't want to do, that gives you an idea of what you may want to do eventually. So that's how it happened for me. I always wanted to teach and I had no idea how, how I would be teaching at the end of 
five years of law school, but here we are. That's a very interesting take, and I think a lot of students will find relief knowing that you don't have to have it all figured out right from the start. <laughs> and also, uh, the moot, ma'am mentioned it's not just any moot, ma'am. One, the Henry Duran moot, which uh, everyone knows is quite a big deal. Uh, so, ma'am, uh, you know, an entire semester has been has gone by, and for the first time, I think, in the online mode. So. what has your experience been you know both as a teacher as an educator and as a student yourself you you doing your phd so what has it on all been like for you so i'll tell you about the phd bit first i don't have any online classes as a phd student so most of my work has just been limiting myself to my writing um that has not been very challenging because invariably writing requires a certain kind of solitude Uh, not continuous not necessary you do have <laughs> to speak to you know energize your thoughts and reconsider them but the writing part hasn't been very challenging and i've heard similar uh, opinions from other phd students at the same time i think uh, comprehensively we shouldn't forget we're in the middle of a pandemic so any pressure to be productive to be useful to do something it just makes it worse we are in a catastrophic situation and we are all trying to survive so even if we don't get anything done in that sense i think that's perfectly okay there is something we need to reconcile with because sometimes we work simply to stay afloat so you know that's a general observation on working during the pandemic um as a teacher it has been hard if you ask any of my students <laughs> i for me it's the physical energy of the classroom that allows me to do what i do and the way i want to do it so i need to walk around i need to see the faces of who i'm teaching how are they responding that that that's a lot that to me that's a very significant aspect of the teaching activity so not being able to do that has been difficult um it's almost sometimes it's almost as if you're speaking into a void and not everybody has the luxury of switching their cameras on in course of you know an online lecture so if you can't see you can't comprehend and i remember telling somebody that one of the things i find myself doing is speaking louder than i should because i can't see anybody so i don't know if i'm getting through or not and and involuntarily responses to speak louder so we figure out these strange ways to adapt and at the same time um the sheer potential of online education and the accessibility that it can generate imagine somebody sitting in some remote corner being able to access a lecture so there is that online education has revealed to us that you can make education accessible you can include or rather you can negate this ableistic tendency where everybody has to go to classroom not many people may want to or be in a position to because of other limitations so some of these things have come to the fore because of online education and going forward we honestly need to rethink the way we understand education it can reach far and wide on the strength of internet and we really should focus our energy on that than other uses of the internet at the moment <laughs> and at the same time you know we should not undervalue the physical energy of a classroom it's it's something else altogether so initial reflections and i'm sure i will uh, you know think of more things along the way yeah no that's actually uh, very well summed up uh, and uh, i think you're the first professor who has actually acknowledged the fact that 
not everyone is in is in a position to switch on their cameras because in in, in the students community you know we've been talking about it and <laughs> uh, i get told you know that someone is um, asking that the teacher is asking please switch on your camera and one of the students actually replied i'm i will do that as soon as i get stopped screaming at by my mother <laughs> so <laughs> no you know it's funny you mentioned this because um having taught for nearly a year a decade now there are some things i observe that some relationships appear adversarial or sort of positioned against each other but they really are not so when i talk to teachers all i can hear is them saying you know i understand why students can't switch on their cameras they must be really tired they must be really fatigued and then there are students at the other side who you know sometimes can and sometimes cannot comprehend the limitations so overall my sense is everybody is very empathetic to what is going on it's just that they're all putting these very specific roles by the structures that expect us to perform certain duties right so even when you understand another person's helplessness sometimes your own comes in confrontation with that so it's more the structure than the individuals and the positions that they are placed in that i think we really need to look at in this light right um you know before we move any further i think the first uh, issue that i want to bring up is uh, uh, you know the 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 new bar council of india notification which is now uh, suggesting that llms are to be a two year course rather than a one year course as is the norm internationally as well so what what are what are your takes on that you know as an ac- academic yourself what do you think is this a step in the right direction you know to answer your question we we'll have to take a step back and um think a little about what do we want out of our education system and this is something i try to think about a lot and i speak to my friends and colleagues about this what do we want at the end of a certain duration of legal education my fear is because we live in a certain kind of you know neoliberal economy the commodification of education has already happened so it's unavoidable that people will think of employment people will think of utility of the education in a certain manner and you know this as a law student most of the times people are wondering about what internship to go to where are you likely to get your placement and so on and so forth that thinking is so entrenched that the institutions that promulgate that thinking often don't look beyond it so i ask myself why would you know a two year llm serve better or not serve as much as a one year llm some of the um, ideas behind a one year llm was i think uh, in many ways to get a sense of what a masters program would be like while acknowledging that in terms of learning this is not enough i think most of us who've done a one year llm would come back and tell each other that by the time the degree you know by the time i started understanding what i was doing the degree was over so one year llm in many way encapsulate sort of a taste for what is to come if that's how you look at it yeah. a lot of people look at it very instrumentally that i just have to spend a year studying and then i will be employable it was a thought that i had in mind when you know because since i was planning to do the llm from abroad and i thought oh it's just a year i need to get this out of the way otherwise i will not be able to teach it was an instrumental requirement for teaching having done the llm i thought oh i know nothing at the end of this am i even equipped to teach so i'm not sure what has gone into the making of the two year llm suggestion but this is not new this question has come up before even when i was contemplating going back to teaching after my llm i was told that um because you know the net was a requirement for us 
Yeah. Uh, thankfully, some of the institutions no longer need it. And we were told that those of us who don't come with an equivalent two years master's degree will not be allowed to sit for it. So I wonder sometimes if these considerations actually take into account the time you need to think and learn. So how much of the time frame corresponds to the outcome and how much of the outcome actually genuinely thinks about learning? So I don't know. My thoughts are two years is a good time to learn, but I doubt if that is the intent behind changing it to two years. So we have to wait and see. Right. Uh, Ma'am, you know, so staying on the, on the subject of uh, legal education, as a student, what I see is that there's a great divide between some of the top tier law schools and then what is uh, called, uh, quote unquote, tier two law schools, a term I hate because I apparently belong to one of to, to such a tier. So uh, what do you think can be done to, you know, somehow bridge this divide? Because we see that access to opportunities and resources to some of these law schools is, is immense. Whereas in uh, law schools, other law schools, um, even remote access to SEC was given only recently because it was a pandemic and we were all online. There's no access to JSTOR and other such researching portals. So there's clearly a great divide between legal education. Do you think that it's even possible to bridge this gap? I would come to the, you know, I'll come to that bit about the possibility later, but I must tell you what you are talking about is something very, very close to my heart. And, um, you know, since this is an informal conversation, at this juncture, I must completely bust the myth between these fantastic elite law students from what you call the tier one law schools and students elsewhere on two counts. One, when we were studying, when I was in law school in my first year, we were in what is now recognized to be a you know, fairly competent national law school. Back then we were the third batch. It had nothing. We were literally the third batch in the law school. Invariably the comparisons to other national law schools were there. And that sense that we were not quite there was constantly present. And I can tell you that it does nothing for the student to be compared to these, these phantom ideas that have been generated from years and years of heuristics. These places are what they are because of the time that was devoted and the structures that were created around it in itself and the access, as you mentioned, in itself, it shouldn't matter. These sort of categories should only be very, very instrumental. And I must also tell you, so um, during my term, uh, when we don't have term at Jindal, I try and teach in some public universities and state universities, particularly in West Bengal. And I'm talking about the kind of universities where you barely have a bench to sit on. And having taught students there and taught students in national law schools and at Jindal, I can tell you there is no difference in terms of the quality and the capacity to think. It's just as good. In some ways, probably hungrier because less opportunities are given to them. So. Honestly, it's all about the heuristics. And much like you, I don't, I don't believe in these distinctions. I don't think it serves anything. Sometimes it creates this incredibly illusory sense of superiority that lands us nowhere. Yeah. And that shouldn't have to be the case. So in terms of, is this paradigm shift possible? Yes, I think for two counts. One, um, a lot of younger people are now interested in academia. Now, whatever be their reason, whether it's, you know, temporarily fashionable at the moment. And <laughs> things like I think just younger energy always makes it possible to make some change because you're able to relate to the state of being a student better. 
And the second thing is, you know, what we were speaking of a while ago, the fact that the pandemic has brought to the fore the capacity of technology. I genuinely think more and more heuristics are possible in terms of the internet, in terms of access to resources, and so on and so forth, which, you know, brings me to something else I think about and speak of quite often, education as a community. And you speak of the law school. One of the very unpleasant things we do in the law school is we teach students to compete and not work as a community. The only time you will find them working together is either in a legal aid clinic or if they're working as a moot court team. But there's always this sense of I have to one up the other person because the employment market looks at you and your friend as potential competitors. Now, this is not just a law school problem. It's a comprehensive educational problem. But, right. you know, something about the, the language of law school makes it worse. It's the way we speak. We're debating, we're arguing, we're mooting. It's is aggressive. It's never we're getting together and doing something. There's something very colonial about this aggression. So law schools amplify our tendency to bring each other down, even though that may not be the intent. And having said that, I must say there are lots of good things about law schools. <laughs> Lots of, lots of them, but this is something I noticed. The way we are framing is far too competitive and sometimes maybe it's involuntary. But I, I genuinely think change is possible, if not now in the next four or five years, but we're heading in that direction, or so I hope. <laughs> that's, that's good to know. Uh, so ma'am, uh, earlier you talked about how, you know, a large part of your PhD work uh, involves writing and that now brings me uh, to the next point, which is regarding academic legal writing. Uh, as has often been said, and what I've realized from my own experience is that uh, those without a training in law can often find this kind of writing to be highly inaccessible. Of course, now there are uh, new, newer kinds of writings that are coming out, which are meant specifically for non-lawyers, you know, we see people like Dr. Chintan Chandrachud writing their books, Cases That India Forgot, and so on and so forth. But in what, do you think, first of all, that it's a fair criticism of uh, legal writing that it's inaccessible to outsiders? And secondly, if it is inaccessible, then what then is the purpose of this writing? Hmm. That's a very interesting question, you know, and I don't think the... Um concerns are limited to legal writing, they yeah. they can be extended to academic writing. In Definitely, general. right. Um, so there are two things here. One is that academic writing is not often intended to be accessible because you're speaking to the community, by which I don't mean it has to be completely incomprehensible, but there is something to be said about the effort you make to engage with the text. Now, not use jargon for the sake of using jargon, but more of writing is a time-consuming process. Reading and thinking that you dedicate to the writing should try and reflect some of that. In the sense that reading needs you to sit with the text. Sometimes it requires you to come back to the text. So while we reflect on the nature of writing, it also tells us a little about the direction reading is going at. And with that in mind, I think some category of writing should retain its complexity to allow the reader to enhance their ways of thinking and reading. Reading is not intended to always be an easy exercise. Of course. Having said that, I have also seen, you know, writing that is incomprehensible simply because it can be incomprehensible. And that I find um, futile because it's not just law students that we are speaking to. If at the end of the day, you want wider readership, 
because you're looking to perhaps, you know, even even uh, perhaps second to most in the beginning of certain kind of thinking, you will have to learn to be more accessible. And not all writers can do both. And I think sometimes keeping your audience in mind helps. Now, this is where um, I differ from some kinds of scholarship where I think personally for me, and I know of a lot of other academics, the research then comes from the teaching. Because in the classroom, you're expected to break down very, very complex ideas into really simple things. Right. I, I think that helps your writing. Because you're catering to a diverse set of people, a certain kind of denominator, and not everybody is at the same capacity to think for a host of reasons. Yeah. You know, it's not an indicator of anybody's intelligence. But just that exercise allows you to break your writing down into different forms. And in the times that we live in, there's this overarching specter of the internet, you know. I don't know what it has done, but it's definitely done something to both how we circulate information, how we receive information, and most importantly, our capacity to read. It's posed a serious challenge to reading long form, even for some of us. So, you know, I think our brains are still adapting to it. I don't know what this means in the long run, but I also see people adapting their writing to the internet. I do this sometimes on my social media, you know, as you mentioned, because I realize a vast variety of people are on my social media. So I'll not be deploying the same form that I do elsewhere. So, you know, coming back to what you said, I think there's some merit to letting writing remain slightly difficult for the project of rescuing reading and rescuing thinking. But at the same time, we also should try to be more accessible. Otherwise, what is the point really? I mean, who's reading you just for your community? And then, yeah, it's very limiting. That's a very interesting take, ma'am. And uh, my next question is, in fact, if it builds on, on this, legal writing, legal education, all of these things which are so essential to the law school experience, somehow fail to equip a student in the practical realities of law. One of the criticisms that's often uh, furthered is that, uh, you know, the theory that you're learning in law school is highly impracticable and it's not relevant to what actually has to uh, happen in, in court. I remember there was, a, there was a judge from one of the high courts who visited our college once and she said that what you don't learn in law school is important in court. So what's your take on that? Why do you think there's such a great divide between uh, legal education and then when a person actually goes to court and starts practicing? Uh, you know, what you ask is, again, a very, very important question. At the outset, I must completely admit to my limitations about, uh, you know, any knowledge of how the court functions because I've never practiced. <laughs> never set foot inside a court except for my, you know, internship period. So... Um, any opinion I give you will be from the perspective of a legal educator, Definitely. purely. But I think in part, it's because we, and I'll problematize the idea of both theory and practice for us a little bit. What we understand to be practice is not necessarily disconnected to the theoretical framework. So, you know, very often you'll hear people say something like, but my view is from the ground reality. Yeah. Now, the interesting part is the ground reality is also predicated on a theory. It's still based on a theory, a certain form of how things work, how things don't. It may not have been theorized. So, because what is theory at the end of the day except the hows and whys of something? So, even if you were to look at how the court is operating or why it's operating the way it is, it is a form of theory. So, 
in many ways, it's one theory competing against the other. We just don't see it as such. And the reason we may reject their interaction is in part because it's not able to explain the reality in entirety. Sometimes because you don't understand the analysis of one form of theory. And by analysis, I mean what it intends to convey. Sometimes because you understand, but you don't want to accept it. It's something we do a lot. If something is different to what we are used to, our instant reaction is to reject it. It's all in the realm of theory, just that we make the distinction. And sometimes simply because sticking to our worldview gives us a lot of social purchase. So it's a pure refusal to acknowledge. And it's this complex terrain that's been simplified into theory and practice. Um, I would actually go far, so far as to say that thinking about the theory, thinking about how it affects your everyday, even acts like this conversation or teaching or, you know, the, this, the series that you're doing, all of this rests somewhere between theory and practice. It's, it's translating a certain thought into a certain idea. Um, that's one thing, the way we characterize things. The other is, um, and this is, uh, you know, slightly more, um, slightly more from the perspective of how we formulate legal education. I've said this in one of my recent writings. When we do social sciences, we see it purely as theory. It's not though, it's your everyday. The way you form an opinion, how that opinion operates within your family, within your friend circle, who your friends are, how do they think the way they do. All of it comes within the realm of a certain kind of sociology. But when we read it, we think of it as theories that have no bearing on us. In part, it's probably because self-reflexivity is not a skill that we are taught often in law school. Critical thinking is not something that we are taught in law school. And it's also because while we use social sciences to understand law, we suddenly start thinking it has nothing to do with the law that's outside. So, you know, if you bring it back to the discussion on the court, let's say we do the statutes and what the procedural law looks like. And you go to the court and you realize half your time is spent in engaging with somebody who's dealing with bureaucracy. Yeah. Or somebody is going to eventually make your access to the courtroom easy. This is very much a part of the social fabric and something that sociology tells you to contemplate. We don't make that connection because we've been told that in law school only the law part matters. So the social sciences instrumentally tell you things about society, but you don't think about how they have a bearing on your everydayness. And you will hear this in another form, you know, this is, this is something we hear a lot of late. If you talk to somebody about something and have some political purchase, they will they'll tell you, no, but I'm apolitical. I don't have a view. And the luxury to be apolitical is precisely this. This is disconnect between where you are in the food chain, how your actions actually affect the food chain, and this very individualistic, capitalist, neoliberal way of thinking that tells us our goals are something that's fundamentally different from what's happening outside. So we sometimes have no idea how our actions are contributing to the larger way. So, you know, in my understanding, it's not so much that there's a chasm between theory and practice, but between self-reflexivity and critical thinking. We don't do that in law schools or in legal education enough to tell people how we are connected to what we are learning. So I think that's where the gap lies, more than the actuality of it. Wonderful. So the good part of these interviews is that we can always go back to whatever ma'am said, we can rewind and listen to it over and over again, because clearly there's a lot to unpack. And this, this show that we're doing of only 30, 30, 25 minutes is, is hardly enough to uh, talk about a host of these issues. Uh, so thank you, ma'am, because, you know, 
although we are <laughs> a little short of time there's no one stopping us but we have to stop at some point or the other so i will just uh, get to the final set of questions which are fun which are a little fun bit away from <laughs> all the all these tough questions that we yes <laughs> so uh, ma'am you know you've been a teacher for a long time and like you mentioned you've taught in jindal some national law schools and even public universities in west bengal so what are some things that students do that you're completely fed <laughs> up of that you don't want them to do anymore that you had enough of well i must tell you as i'm very entertained by the immense creative capacity of students <laughs> to not show up in class to to just figure out ways of uh, not submitting assignments so i think the fatigue comes more from the fact that our teaching loads are heavy not so much about the students do i must tell you a funny story on that account um <laughs> in a particular semester i had a particular student delaying all their submissions and for every delayed submission there was a relative who passed away <laughs> and this happened three four times until the fifth time we realized the same relative has passed away for the third time now <laughs> so, <laughs> compared to ask the students if you know this grandmother was revisiting frequently in his dreams and how this recurring cycle of feeling one you know one unfortunate grandmother kept happening so there are all these things i honestly enjoy them i think it's fun because it takes away from the fatigue of everything else right <laughs> interesting and uh, mom you know uh, so uh, are you aware of uh, quote unquote gnlu twitter you graduated from gnlu are you aware of are you aware that that the gn that that all news and information from gnlu somehow becomes viral on twitter and it reaches everywhere do you know that <laughs> i i, I came across this very recently i saw on somebody's twitter about gnlu twitter i must tell you my association with gnlu in that sense had severed a long time ago i've only reconnected recently and plugged into what the institution is up to but i came across this a couple of weeks ago and i i didn't know what to make of it what is this what is this thing? you must tell me about this yes so well uh, the, the the most recent event was that there was apparently a letter written either in jest or out of a person's own volition which had a host of uh, demands that the first years who haven't even visited the college yet wanted the college to fulfill so a couple of very bizarre things like uh, this is an this is an this is a good time to install air conditioners uh, in our uh, rooms and that uh, the, the the next batch should be allowed to come in only late so that the seniors maintain some sort of uh, dominance over the juniors and all all that kind of all those kind of things <laughs> well anyway uh so yeah ma'am uh you know uh, and this can be one of the final questions that i ask uh what are some things that you suggest that students do to make the most of their time in law school because there's always so much happening there's mooting there's opportunities to write there's internships not just one kind of internship there's litigation corporate now journalism and so on and so forth i for one find myself to be quite lost So what do you suggest that students do which can really help them get the most out of their law school experience? And um, now you know my my advice if I may is going to differ from what a lot of other law faculty members may tell you but that in itself tells you that there are clearly many ways to navigate a law school. Yeah. Uh for me I think start with acknowledging the fact that you're lost as a good place to be at it's not a bad thing. 
it allows you to think of everything totally it allows you to think of everything as an opportunity everything is an opportunity to learn to engage not necessarily to master you're not going to learn how to write it takes a lifetime you know if i now look back at what i'm writing now 10 years later i probably think it's rubbish so <laughs> everything takes a lifetime there is at no point we need to master it we simply need to engage with it as sincerely as we can so be lost it's a good place try different things not because everybody else is and because you feel is mad rush to be somewhere try it because you think you will get something out of it and even if you don't that's fine in general something i tell all my students is take your time with what you read and then revisit it trying to read 20 different things will not get you anywhere you don't have the time you don't have the bandwidth you not only have you know five to six subjects per term there are other demands and law schools can in many ways be toxic places also you know the community then you you yeah. throw in a bunch of different people from different places and you put them together and there are so many barriers so take your time whatever you're doing do it with a lot of love and then come back to it to see how you feel about it particularly a text that you've not read in a long time and try and build community try and make friends try and speak to people across different epistemology different language barriers different community only the cool person who speaks a certain kind of english needn't be your friend definitely we don't have these these understandings in law school i now look back and wish i had spoken to many others that i didn't back then not because you know you just don't know so take the opportunity to appreciate the separateness of another person without looking down without being terrified of it and just spend your time doing that being a student there's a lot of fun and luxury in being a student aside from the stress of exams yeah. so occasionally think about those things as well that's it honestly just be kind to yourself and make the most of your time that's a really warm message and i'm going to use this for the trailer of this show because this is the general vibe of this episode <laughs> warm and comforting <laughs> makes you feel good about being a law student uh, ma'am you know and this is my last question and this is how i end all my shows um uh most of my learning comes from books uh so what are some of the books that you've really enjoyed reading and you would suggest everyone else should read you know i find this such a challenging question <laughs> because that list is humongous for me yeah i can and understand i honestly feel like i'll betray one book if i if i if i don't name that and if i name something else so i'm actually going to take your question turn it on its head and tell you while you learn a lot from books there's so much to learn from conversations so i i'll i'll be happy to share a list of my books with you which is but largely though i think it's more the you know the experiences that reading can inculcate and the thoughts that reading allow you to um, just sort of develop so aside from books i would say learn from conversations they are often equally stimulating and 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 especially with people you don't usually talk to yeah. so books are there you will book late from everybody that's my last bit for your show try and speak to different kinds of people there's a lot there fantastic so because you must learn from conversations <laughs> remember to subscribe to this channel because we're all about conversations <laughs> and uh, with that ma'am thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking so so candidly on so many issues i got to learn a lot and uh, hopefully the episode will add value uh, to all our viewers as well thank you so much man
thank you so much for calling me sarthak i really enjoyed myself and this was a really really good break from the otherwise <laughs> mundane day i was about to have thank you <laughs> thank you so much ma'am